Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Lectures Podcast. Today's episode is part of our World of Coffee Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at the event every year. Since you're with us today, I'm guessing you're into podcasts. Do you know about Recap? It's our new podcast offering a brief overview of recent coffee developments in less than five minutes. You can subscribe by following the link in today's show notes. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 World of Coffee in Berlin. Don't miss this year's lecture series that takes place in Warsaw in June. Visit worldofcoffee.org for more information. If you'd like to follow along, you can find the slides for this lecture linked in the show notes below. Okay, let's get started. We're going to jump right in. Okay, hi everyone. Thanks for um, getting up this early and coming in on a Saturday. We're going to talk, well, really, this is a, a combined combination of two sets of research. So my name is Jonathan Morris. I'm from the University of Hertfordshire, professor of history there. With me is Sabine Parrish. Sabine, do you want to say where you're from? I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Oxford, um, where I also research coffee, but in the anthropological perspective. So in theory, we're very academic, and in practice, we're going to try and actually talk at a level and coffee level that that will be okay. I'm very conscious as an academic, I have two different sets of audiences. The academic audience who pretty much know nothing about coffee, so I kind of have to do a really dumbed down version of this. And then the coffee audience who understand what I'm talking about, and I just try and avoid too many academic-ish terms. Okay, so this is called a sixth era of coffee, a specialty in sustainability and historical and anthropological perspectives. You may be wondering where all the eras of coffee come from, and that's, uh, that's from here. So I've just published this book, which is available in the SCA store, Coffee, A Global History. And as a key to that, I was really, I suppose, trying to argue in the book that I could identify five eras of coffee history. So what I'm going to do is just show you a little bit about that, and that will explain how it is that we think we might get to a sixth era. So my approach to eras is to try to divide a little bit over time and to think about coffee as, if you like, a connected system. So in academies, we'd say that there are these things called, as in world systems, and I think there are, in a sense, coffee world systems, and we can see shifts in those over time. And if you want a very simple way of thinking about that, but a way that's fairly instructive. If you look at this chart here, you'll see those shifts very clearly in terms of the way that coffee has changed its focus over time just in terms of where we're actually producing coffee. So from an initial phase where all the coffee that was being produced was basically being produced in Ethiopia and Yemen, so Africa and Arabia, and that's pretty much 1700s up to the 1700s, basically all the world's coffee. But we have a shift to a second sort of colonial era, which I'll I'll come on to, which uh, sees really coffee particularly being grown in the Caribbean and in East Asia. So places like uh, San Domingue in the Caribbean and Java in uh, Asia. Uh, We then have the sort of the start of what we probably recognize now, uh, where at the beginning of the 20th century, Uh, We've reached the point where Brazil has become so dominant and Latin America so dominant that Latin America is producing over 90% at that point of the world's coffee supply. 
So this is the kind of the first industrial era of coffee. That became globalized and um, with also the rise of Robusta, we see the re-entry of particularly Africa into that market. So if you look at the 70s, again, you'll see suddenly that Africa is back there and we have a changed distribution uh, because of the rise of Robusta, uh, particularly at that point in West African countries. And of course, you're all familiar where we are today, but with the point that Asia again is growing a substantial amount of our coffee and particularly, of course, Vietnam. So if you look at those, just those divisions, you'll see that there's a huge sort of sets of geographical shifts just in the, as it were, the production, the growing centers for coffee. Um, I see them as also being connected through production, through to consumption, and also in the ways that those systems are organized. I want to show you very briefly uh, what I mean. Um, here's my first section, the wine of Islam, yeah? Um, okay, um, Caldi, I'm really sorry, but no, I can find no historical evidence for the existence of Caldi. Uh, maybe he did, wouldn't it be lovely if he did? But what we do know is coffee originated in Ethiopia, the usages of coffee originated in Ethiopia. But when we start getting coffee trade, that is because of the way that coffee is taken up in Arabia, particularly in Yemen. So um, if we think about that, and we see here uh, the port of Mocha, uh, Mocha became the shipping port for coffee, which uh, really comes from two sources. It's still either being wildly gathered in Ethiopia and shipped in and then out of Mocha, uh, or it's being cultivated in Yemen from about the 1540s. Uh, and of course, that then goes around basically a kind of an Islamic uh, diaspora around the Red Sea, uh, reaches the Ottoman Empire as the Ottomans take over from the Egyptians as the dominant power in the region. And uh, you see here kind of a classic um, coffee salesperson, as it were, in uh, Ottoman garb. And um, up until the 1700s, that's the coffee world system. What changes is when, of course, Europeans start uh, first drinking coffee, Coffee appears in Europe in the 1600s, really. Uh, coffee shops start opening in Europe in the 1650s, but it's really in the 1700s, um, particularly in sort of 1710, 1712, that coffee starts being taken by Europeans and cultivated elsewhere, having obtained the seeds. So, uh, and it's cultivated in a particular style. Uh, and that style, by and large, is what we might call forced labor, slavery, serfdom. Um, so this is a, uh, a perfect combination of what we're seeing. Uh, on my, behind me here, uh, this is a, a young girl drinking coffee in a nice bourgeois um, house in the Netherlands. And the picture on the left there is of a huge plantation in Suriname. Uh, Suriname was the first place that the Dutch planted coffee in the Caribbean shortly after they had started in Java. Uh, in Java, the coffee is mostly uh, cultivated by serfs, if you like. I think that would be the best way to describe it. That's to say the peasants working for their local Javan lords who had to supply coffee to the Dutch. Uh, in Suriname, it's more straightforwardly naked slavery, um, using slaves imported from Africa and if you look at that picture, you can get a sense of what we're talking about. 
in the sense of, do I have my little pointer on? Yeah, here we are. Okay, so here we go through here. Here's your uh, headquarters of the slave labor and the housing for them. Here's the production center. Here's the housing for whites as it's actually labeled on the diagram here. And here beyond here, we have this huge coffee plantation. So that's the way that coffee is being grown. And um, that really is the dominant system until a couple of things happen. Uh, one is the um, Haitian Revolution, which basically knocks Haiti uh, and San Domingue out of this market. The second is coffee rust. Not in Suriname, but coffee rust in Asia, destroying the coffee market. And the third, contemporaneous, is the rise of Brazil and Latin America as producers. And that rise, again, is a very um, symbiotic rise. Symbiotic in the sense that we have a relationship between Brazil, the biggest producer, the United States, the first mass market. So uh, the cup of Joe, the wonderful cup of Joe, the ref ever refillable diner on the left there. And on the right, we have uh, the Port of Santos, uh, unloading coffee into uh, bags. Again, the Brazilian style here, so the Brazilian labor force starts as a slave labor force, is turned into what I would call indentured labor force. Uh, so um, the colonials, the uh, people who are basically, uh, including many European migrants actually, who are brought over to work on the plantations, they pay off their debt by work. So they are basically indentured laborers. Um, okay, that growth of that mass market eventually, uh, particularly in the 20th century, but really more to uh, the post-45 era, is transformed by, as we said, the replacement of um, those areas affected by rust with the introduction of Robusta and the growth of Robusta, and Robusta, of course, being used in, again, the new sort of soluble coffee products, uh, notably Nescafe. Um, sorry, Nescafe. But um, the point being that, again, we have a new kind of beverage system, a new set of markets, and a new set of coffee supply. Uh, this, again, what you see here is, uh, well, at the top here, you see Ivory Coast, which became a huge producer in the 70s, about the third biggest producer in the world, uh, and today, of course, underneath Vietnam. So that's our first four eras of coffee, and um, here's number five, which you're probably familiar with, I would think so. And um, the interesting thing here is I've shown you the same store. Not the same literal space, but the same brand. Uh, here's one of the very first specialty coffee shops. Uh, this is a coffee shop called Starbucks in Seattle in the 70s. You might notice that there are no espresso machines, that the whole thing is, these are really the pioneers of the specialty era, trying to sell, by and large, coffee for the domestic market beans for people to take away and brew. The premiumization of coffee, yeah? Uh, so contrast that with the kind of the everyday Joe, the everyday um, Nescafe. Uh, what really makes this take off? This, espresso-based beverages, and particularly milky espresso-based beverages. So I've shown you what I hope is quite a nice flat white there. I'm always terrified that someone will say, I, I didn't pour it, but hey, I liked it, but you know, I'm sure you like it more. Um, and where have we got to? Well, here's that store now. This is 
Shanghai, uh, the roastery in Shanghai, Starbucks Reserve Roastery. Uh, I've chosen to use Starbucks, of course, I could use any kind of independence. My point is, okay, so we've had now almost 30, 40 years of this specialty era, and that's where we've been going. So, let me summarize what I'm saying there. Here are my five eras, and here are my kind of, uh, sort of, if you like, ideal types, that each era, you can see a particular labor system, you can see a set of consumers, changing sets of consumers, you can see changing sets of, if you like, the leading brew form, yeah? Um, so, I'm going to say, by the way, just to say, I have put on the hound out, please don't use this without permission, because this is my summary of everything. But, um, okay. I want to just talk a little bit about also the issue that this raises. And I think for that we need to do here. What were the intermediary structures? Where's the power in our chain? And what's that been doing to things like prices? Okay, in era one, really the power is there in that set of shipping brokers who were shipping out of Mocha. The people who controlled that trade were by and large actually uh, from the Banyan uh, sort of caste or tribe, uh, Muslim tribe of merchant class. So the power is quite close to the source. Um, and it's really they who set the prices. And in many ways, that price is determined and the whole sets of costs are determined by the fact that actually it's very difficult to get coffee down from the mountains in the areas around Sana right down to the market. So that's the key thing, is actually just getting coffee supply. Uh, Dutch ships used to queue for a sort of six months just to wait to fill up their hold in order to have enough coffee to sail. Uh, when we go to the colonial good, well, we've talked about how that works. It's, uh, you know, those great classic merchant, state merchant companies, the East India companies of uh, the Dutch East India, the French East India, the British East India. Uh, and at that point, particularly within the context of pricing, well, labor is not much of a cost. Yeah, slavery and surf labor, you can pretty much set your labor costs where you want. Uh, and that's pretty much the same in that third era of uh, industrial era when we see the takeoff of the kind of the Brazil feeding into America. Brazil's strategy, the huge barons who own most of the coffee industry, the so-called Paulistas, basically are working on the sense of let's keep the price low, keep labor costs low, which they're able to do through the control of indentured labor, and therefore, by keeping that price low, grow that market in the States. So... The, the, the sort of the, you know the, the pricing again is not for them an issue, and of course it's of course it's in a sense not an issue if you're actually working in the industry because you're not going to get paid by price anyway because you're not really going to get paid that much. Um, in the fourth era, the global commodity era, this is when we see particularly the operation of the ICA. Uh, we see. Smallholders, by and large, and uh, particularly in the sort of the African and Asian countries, producing but seeing and selling their cherry very early in the process to basically government marketing boards. Uh, again, there's a discrepancy between the prices and indeed the ways that the market is structured between the interests of those who are actually producing and those who are doing the selling, i.e., the state. It's the state 
which has to pass back the revenue from whatever the coffee price is, and the state's interest in passing back their revenue are not necessarily what they should be. So when we reach our specialty era, in one sense where we've seen a lot of liberalization, uh, we can tell a story which goes various ways about how price works. Uh, because we have a more open market, but we have a big problem with the commodity market. I'm not going to start by talking about the sea price and whatever. I just want to make one historical point, uh, semi-historical point. Okay. Um, when I finished writing this book was in 2017, and there's the world record price for coffee then was $601. That was for Panama Geisha. Surprise, surprise. That was for, from Esperanza. Uh, last year, as you know, that went up to $803 a pound. So we're really pushing that price thing in specialty. Uh, there's just been quite a lot of commotion in London because this guy, Alan Ducat, is selling his uh, coffee imported from Yemen at uh, 15 pounds a cup. And I believe I saw that actually this coffee, the 2018 coffee, is being retailed at $75 a cup in New York if you are lucky enough to go to Clatch. So, wow, we've really done great on that specialty price, except, of course, we know that we haven't. That's the indicator price when I finished the book in 2017. Not great, but you could probably make that work. That's the indicator price now. Uh, 89 cents when I was last when I put these slides together. Uh, it's pretty difficult for anyone to make that work. We've probably spent the whole conference debating why that is. I think there is one very clear overview from the market fundamentals, and I've just taken this quote from the ICO. And it's simple, yeah, we've got too much coffee, uh, which is contrary to a lot of what we think because we think we're having price, you know, we think that coffee is in danger, et cetera. And that's a good argument for making that case as well in terms of where we might be going. But right now, we have too much coffee. And when we have too much coffee, a market works that if there's too much supply and not enough demand, down goes your price. And that's our problem with sustainability, in a nutshell. Uh, historically, how has that worked? Well, historically, when we've had price difficulties, we've had two, two ways of attempting to deal with them, and they've both been from the supply side. Um, Brazil in the 1930s, in the worst possible time, that is to say at the Great Depression, had absolutely massive harvests of coffee. And uh, in order to get rid of all the excess coffee, they tried various forms of valorization, uh, which is to say sort of controlling the supply of coffee onto the market, which ended them up with trying to do all other kinds of things with coffee and ended up actually with burning it. This was one of the more inventive things where they tried to uh, use it for uh, powering locomotives, mixing it with tar. Did it work? Well, sort of. Um, did it work in the trains? Don't know. I imagine that the train must have smelled quite nice. Um, but as a way of managing the market, it's a difficult way. It's a long-term way. It's not really sustainable. What's actually driven prices back up is unfortunately events like this, what you might call catastrophic events. This is frost. We all know what happened in the Brazil frost of 75. We know that when there's a frost, when the supply is dramatically reduced, then great, the, sea, um, the price gets rebalanced. That also isn't a greatly sustainable way for dealing with where we are today. Um, so what we need to think about, I think, is looking at the other end, looking at consumption. And in those terms, there's something quite interesting going on that I think maybe points the way 
to a bit of a future. So the first thing is that we're beginning to see a shift in global consumption patterns. Uh, everything that I've shown you so far has really concentrated on consumption in two places, Europe and America. Sure, those are still big consumers, but now we have the market of Asia as a whole already overtaking the market of North America, purely by volume, uh, and hugely by compound growth. Um, so we see a significant change going on there. And there's another change there, and that's what happens if we do this and put together uh, South America, Central America, and Africa, three main other producing areas. And we see that by now, they're accounting for about 27% of consumption. Now, again, that is not the lion's share, but it is quite possibly a way forward because these are places that have not consumed coffee, have often not been able to consume coffee. Certainly under that ICA regime, many of those governments in charge or those marketing agencies would try and prevent domestic consumption of coffee in order to generate the maximum resource. But if we see a growth in consumption at producing countries, then we begin to see the chance for changing the structures of the market in two ways. Firstly, in terms of growing overall consumption, and secondly, in terms of changing, as it were, and providing alternative outlets for producers who are otherwise going purely onto world markets. So we might see a sixth era of coffee that reconfigures where our producing countries are also our consuming countries, and we see some signs of that already. I'm not saying these are great coffee houses. Again, I'm not going to endorse or, or otherwise. Cafe Coffee Day in India has been fantastically successful. It's been going for quite a while. They make quite a big thing of the fact that they take a significant degree of their supply from India itself. Java, uh, Java House in East Africa, uh, more recent. Sure, I'm, Java House is very much for an African middle class, elite class that's just beginning to appear, but it's setting a new trend again. Um, and again, making something of the fact that the coffee that they are using is also the coffee that they are growing. If there is to be a sixth era of coffee, it's going to see that reconfigured substantially because this is where the potential for growth is and where the potential for redeveloping is. Now, the greatest success that I've shown you there has in been in South America. Uh, the greatest success of all has been in Brazil, and I'm gonna pass over to Sabine now, who's gonna talk a bit about her anthropological research into specialty coffee in Brazil. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I'm going to sit and do this because Jonathan is a lot more experienced than I am, and he gives a lot more lectures than I do, and I need to have my notes to reference, sadly. Um, but, so as an anthropologist, my work is basically kind of piggybacking off of what historians do who lay the groundwork to tell me what came before and I look at what is happening now. Um, and so, so I spent a whole year from June 2017 to July 2018 uh, living in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, that is beautiful, beautiful Sao Paulo. Um, 
So I was mostly just sitting in coffee shops there, but I was, you know, I was doing that to observe and interview coffee professionals and enthusiasts um, about how and why they consume specialty coffee. And I was doing this because I'd become increasingly very annoyed at all of the coffee books and articles that I'd read that mentioned Brazil as the world's largest producer of coffee, but would only ever kind of at best have a footnote, um, you know, that says Brazil also consumes a ton of coffee. Uh, Jonathan's book doesn't do that, by the way, and, and that's why we're friends. <laughs> so I basically set out to try and expand that footnote um, and to look at basically what this, you know, this possible sixth era looks like as it takes shape on the ground. And I picked Sao Paulo because it is the financial heart of Brazil, um, but it's also a city that was essentially founded on coffee, and without coffee it would not exist as such. Um, it is a perfect geographic waypoint between the Porto Santos that you saw earlier um, and some of the inland coffee-growing regions. Okay, so as we all know, because we're here at World of Coffee event in Berlin, um, specialty coffee is a hugely booming business right now. Um, and so here is a map of coffee shops that identified or I identified as specialty. Um, so serving specialty grade coffees and primarily a coffee shop. So not principally a restaurant that has, you know, a nice coffee program. Um, and this was the sort of map and number at the start of my work in Brazil. Um, the, the colors don't mean anything. I'm just, you know, I'm an anthropologist, not a geographer. So I'm not great at maps yet. Um, so at this point, I identified 32 specialty coffee shops. Sao Paulo has a population of 12.18 million people. The metropolitan region in its totality brings it up to almost 22 million inhabitants. Just focusing on the actual city inhabitants with 32 specialty coffee shops, that's one shop for every 386,625 people. Um, and then here, is what the map looks like as of last month. And um, that's 51 shops, uh, which has brought the number down to one shop per every 238,823 inhabitants, um, which is really, really a huge jump in two years. Um, and the, this map doesn't even include a few of the shops that, um, you know, like happens in any sort of market, opened and then shut within that two-year period. Um, in the time between when I did the two mapping projects. So we kind of keep hearing this term global specialty coffee being thrown around. And I was wondering really what is so global about it? Because are our experiences actually shared around the world? And is this product definitely, definitely global? And so basically what I'm getting at and what I wanted to ask when I got to Brazil is is consumption in a producing nation, somewhere like Brazil, fundamentally different from how we consume specialty coffees here in Europe or in North America? Um, and so today I want to build off one of the fundamental differences in producing nation consumption that I did identify um, in order for us to really seriously think about what this kind of global specialty coffee culture looks like um, and what the nature of labor is within that framework as we start to approach the sixth era of coffee. I'm just going to leave Sao Paulo up here for now. Um, so the most fundamental difference in specialty coffee consumption that I was able to identify and which had a really, really significant impact on all the participants in my study was the fact that it is essentially illegal in nearly all cases to import green coffee that is not Brazilian into Brazil. Um, so this means, 
you know, this was a measure that was put in place to kind of protect against pests and diseases to protect the Brazilian coffee crop. Um, but this means that almost all the coffees that are consumed on a daily basis by Brazilian consumers are Brazilian coffees. What coffees have you had this week? Where did they come from? I mean, I know we're at World of Coffee and maybe it's kind of an extra special place with lots and lots of coffees from all over. But just yesterday, I had coffees from Ethiopia, Rwanda, Kenya, Colombia, and even some really terrible, terrible, very questionable airport coffee that nobody bothered to tell me the provenance of. But if that was an airport coffee in Brazil, I would have known it was definitely Brazilian. And so that's a pretty regular day for me, and it's probably a pretty regular day for you too. Um, so when I was in Brazil, I ran a small kind of coffee diary project where I had participants in Brazil um, track all of the coffees that they consumed um, over a two-week period. And I also ran this with participants in the UK to kind of do a little bit of a comparative perspective. Um, each of my UK participants tasted more origins in a single day than any of the Brazilians did across the two-week project. So if you're in Brazil and you want coffees that are not Brazilian, you either need to be wealthy enough to travel internationally to bring these coffees back with you, or to have well-connected friends who can do that, or take the kind of risky path of ordering in already roasted coffees from abroad. So if anybody's spent extensive time in Brazil or South America, you will know perhaps that the postal system is not the greatest. Things tend to go walk about all the time. Um, and so ordering coffee then becomes quite risky. It's actually a very large financial hit if your currency is not trading very strongly at the moment and you've paid shipping you know, from Denmark to get the coffee that you really, really wanted. And then somebody in the customs office now has your coffee and they're, they're having a great day, but you aren't. So it came up in the coffee diaries again and again and in interviews as well, that despite being very proud of their national coffee heritage and, and really wanting to be staunch supporters of the kind of local and national producers, Brazilians also really actively desired foreign coffees. They did want to participate in what they understood as the global specialty coffee culture. And so doing so meant having like a global understanding of experiences of coffees from around the world. So just like we in kind of traditionally consuming countries do. But humans are these just wonderfully complex and creative creatures, which is why I absolutely adore being an anthropologist, because that's somebody who studies human culture and cultural output. And because I began to see that when Brazilians were struggling to get foreign coffees, they had these wonderful ways to kind of stretch and bend the standard definitions of what we call origin within our supposedly global specialty coffee culture. Because we usually just mean that as the place where coffee is grown. And categories are really useful and absolutely necessary for organizing our world, but it turns out they're very, very flexible things. So when I started asking people what different coffee origins they'd sampled, something really interesting began happening. So here's a quote from an interview. Origins I've tried, Kenya, a marvelous one. Colombia, I liked it when I tried the specialty stuff, but I even liked the soluble Juan Valdez stuff. Argentina, I didn't like that one. It was low co quality coffee, you know, that instant stuff in a tea bag. United States, horrible. England, I drank something there, but now that I think about it, I guess it wasn't from there. Selah, whatever. It was nice. And another one. 
Yeah, I've tried coffee from the United States. I thought it was really bad and very weak. Another one. Another one. Non-Brazilian coffees? Kenya, Colombia, Italy. So, what's happening here? So, origin as we use it in our hegemonic kind of specialty coffee culture refers only to the places where coffee is grown. But the more people I spoke to, the more non-producing countries kept popping up in their responses. Australia, Austria, Argentina, Italy, the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, South Korea, and Canada, which definitely, definitely doesn't grow coffee. So in the grand tradition of kind of the confused and bewildered anthropologist in a culture that is not their own, I automatically assumed that I had made some sort of mistake. And that despite the fact that my Portuguese is pretty good, maybe it wasn't good enough, maybe something had gotten lost in translation. But I had, I had a lot more subsequent conversations and I realized that, like this time at least, I wasn't the problem. The definition and the structure of the understanding of origin as propagated by kind of the non-producing countries in specialty coffee, the countries in power because we have that buying power, these understandings of what origin was had relatively limited relevance for the Brazilian consumers. So in her book, Coffee Life in Japan, the anthropologist Mary White makes the argument for Japan as a particular type of coffee origin within specialty coffee culture despite the fact that, yeah, Japan doesn't grow any coffee. So it has a long history of consumption that began in the 1700s, and Japan developed very distinct styles of making and brewing coffee, as well as many attendant materials and technologies. So she writes that, quote, coffee from Japan has become an international object of desire. It is not the beans themselves, their provenance and varieties that are already global, they are already global commodities. It is the care with which they are selected, roasted, and ground, as well as the attention they are giving in brewing that makes them Japanese in the world's specialty coffee market. So the social and the material practices around Japanese coffee preparation and consumption give it an appealing local aspect for consumers, and it is de deemed distinct enough to function as a type of origin. And it is precisely in this way that the Brazilians I spoke with are able to talk about having coffees from the origin of Italy, or the United States, or Canada. And so this ultimately shows us that in a hybrid consumption production landscape such as Brazil, the raw material of coffee does not necessarily outweigh additional value-added input, such as roasting, all these things that coffee picks up as it moves along the supply chain. Because a Brazilian-grown coffee that's roasted in Berlin and consumed here uh, it might well be kind of, you know, referred to with a very playful portmanteau, and it would ultimately be called essentially Brazilian German. And it might have taken on a little bit of the Berlin spirit when it was here, um, as it is worked upon, it is, you know, transformed into the final roasted coffee and the end coffee beverage. And it allows a Brazilian consumer to add it to their tally of coffees of foreign origin, even if it was also grown in Brazil. And so this ability of Brazilians to be flexible in their understanding of where exactly origin is allows us to open a much, much greater space for the recognition of the labor and the craft that goes into producing coffee at many stages along the supply chain, not only at agricultural origin. So from a producing country, we can learn to see the world with an expanded vision of what exactly the work of production is. So primary production might be, yes, that at the agricultural site, 
But the work of roasters and baristas down the line, and not to mention the labor of dock workers and ship hands and mill workers and the many, many, many others who are involved with coffee as it moves across the globe, that this labor is also necessary labor that does produce the beverage we are after. So to be even able to say that a coffee is Brazilian German automatically requires an awareness of the work that went on regarding the coffee once it did reach Germany. And so in an understanding of a world where coffee can be both from Kenya and the United States, we do arrive at a much more multifaceted and complex understanding of the origins of goods within what is becoming an increasingly globalized consumption landscape and where value is added across space and time. So there in this is the possibility of much more complete biographies being represented in the object and ultimately rep recognized by consumers. So I just want to wrap things up with a quick note on the idea of valorization, which Jonathan already mentioned before. And it is one of the very few words that has entered common English usage from Portuguese. And it means to give or to assign value to something. And I was in one of Giselle Cucinho's coffee courses in Sao Paulo when I realized actually what an important concept it can be for coffee, even outside of kind of its traditional finance uh, significances. So one, one of the other girls in the course was kind of musing aloud about how to get specialty coffee taken more seriously in Brazil. And somebody else piped up saying it was essential to start with valorizing the barista. And so this really helped me realize that what we could call, you know, this possible sixth era of coffee, an era that involves, you know, as active participants um, and increasingly as drivers of trends, countries that have had a historic closeness with the labor of coffee production, this presents the possibility for a much greater valorization of coffee labor in all its forms and all its spaces. And this really, it matters on the farm level. It hopefully means a continuation or even an increase, I hope, of a lot of the really amazing initiatives that help improve the lives of those working at agricultural origin. But it also matters here in places like Berlin or in the United States or wherever consumes but doesn't grow coffee. Because it means that perhaps we can start to apply some of our own origin thinking and respect to our own working practices and labor considerations. And so it gives us new angles of approaching the product that we are drinking, for thinking of those that are involved in its creation, and for recognizing the complexities of global trade. Ultimately, for making specialty coffee something closer to our ideal vision of a global specialty coffee culture. So coffees experience simply beyond a raw material, they are socially situated. And they're kind of entangled in very specific styles of making and drinking and experiencing um, that offer ultimately within this framework of a sixth era, the possibility of labor in all of its forms becoming more visible and ultimately more valued. Thank you. That was one of the many lectures we hosted at World of Coffee Berlin last June. Remember to check out our show notes for relevant links, including a link to worldofcoffee.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA's podcast 2019 World of Coffee Lecture Series, supported by listeners like you. Thank you for joining us.